The reading today is Acts 8, verses 1 through 9. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Camille, for leading and Ben for leading us. So my name is Cody. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Frank is over preaching at Redemption Peoria this morning, so that's where he is. Um, and um, just uh, there's a few things that I want to say before I get into it. First off, my voice is feeling a little weak this morning. Uh, yesterday, my uh, me and a few of the other guys that are up here uh, played at a block party. Um, big big deal. Uh, so we put together a band called The Dad Rock, and um, as it turns out, uh, we might have dad rocked a little too hard, so my voice is, is a little tired <laughs> this morning. Um, uh, many people are giving rave reviews about it. They say it's literally the second best thing to seeing Ryan Adams, uh, so you, know, you might hear things about The Dad Rock. Um, <clears throat> But, and also I want to mention, uh, so one of the things that we, uh, we love as pastors is the interaction that we can have after sermons are preached. We love to be able to talk uh, just about the way people are processing things, thinking through things, um, kind of how, whether they have questions or anything like that. We, we love that and we invite that. Um, and I was able to preach a few weeks ago. And I just want to thank you guys for the interaction that I've gotten to have with it. You know, it hasn't necessarily been about the content, but I've, I've received probably four or five either text messages or emails talking about how they were able to go to Nashville and eat the donut that I talked about. Um, so ultimately, I'm just glad that, glad that we're connecting, that what we're doing is connecting with you guys. I'm also glad that you guys were able to enjoy the greatest donut in the world. Um, so... We are continuing this morning through the book of Acts. We have been talking and walking through the book of Acts since the beginning of the year. We will be doing so for a while now, up until a few weeks before Advent. And this is a story about the movement of God. And last week, we, we, we read probably one of the most um, tragic stories in the book of Acts. Uh, we looked at the story of Stephen. Stephen was one of uh, seven men chosen. He was a Hellenistic Jew, and what that means is that he was, a, he was a, a Gentile converted to Judaism, um, and then he became a Christian. And he was entrusted, along with seven other guys, for the distribution of food to those in need within the church. He was a very uh, uh, highly respected, highly favored uh, man within the church. Um, unfortunately, he made the wrong people upset with some of the ways that he was proclaiming the good news of Christ. Um, and he was brought before a tribunal, basically, accused of heresy against Moses. 
It's kind of what they said. That he, was, that he was a heretic um, downplaying the role of Moses. And then what you read through and what we looked at last week was his defense of that. Basically saying, no, he, he's not a heretic of Moses. In fact, he looks at Moses as one of the great servants of God. And he walks through the history of God, basically talking about how through the rejected servants that God puts forth, God still moves his plan forward. In fact, oftentimes it's through the rejection of his servants by his people that God moves his plan forward. He looks at Joseph, and he looks at Moses, and he looks a little bit at David, and ultimately he's getting to Jesus. That Jesus was the ultimate servant sent by God, who was rejected by the very people he was sent to. And that rejection didn't stop God's movement, but in fact perpetuated it. And in that, he ultimately Im implicated that the religious leaders of that day were not a part of God's plan, but were standing in opposition to him by rejecting Jesus. Well, they didn't take that very well, um, and they murdered him. Uh, they stoned him to death at that point in time. And the irony of the, of the story is that in that defense, Stephen ultimately becomes one of those rejected servants. That by his rejection, God is going to use this to propel his mission forward. And the mission that I'm talking about is what Jesus actually says right at the beginning of Acts 1.8. Right at the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1.8. He says this, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So it was always God's plan for the message of the good news of, of Christ, the resurrected Savior, to come to the Samaritans and come beyond outside of Jerusalem, that this was going to be a message for all people, not just the Jews. What they didn't realize is the way God was going to accomplish this was through persecution. So it ultimately pushes the church into proclaiming the good news of Christ in Samaria is persecution, specifically the persecution of Saul. And we'll understand the irony of that here in a few weeks. But, Paul, er, but Saul is ravaging the church. He is pulling people out of their homes and putting them in prison with the threat and fear that they would be killed for following Jesus, for proclaiming Christ. So many people did what makes sense to do, and that's that they left. So not everybody did. The apostles stayed, remained in Jerusalem. A few of the other people remained in Jerusalem, but many of them left, including this man named Philip, who we just heard about. Philip was also one of those men chosen alongside Stephen. So Philip is a guy who was equally entrusted with the same stuff that Stephen was, who was highly respected, highly loved within the Christian community at that time. And he leaves and goes and proclaims Christ. Um, and that's kind of the setup for what we're understanding. I want to read again, starting in verse 4, to kind of see what's going on here. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. First thing that I want to observe about this is something that I think should be obvious, but oftentimes kind of overlooked and not celebrated. And that's that the good news of Jesus brings healing 
and joy. That the good news of Jesus is actually really good news. I think it's easy to get into the weeds and miss the most basic message of the Bible. And that's that God's love for his people, God's pursuit of all people, is good news. Samaria was an outcast of Israel. So just a little history on who the Samaritans were. Um, A lot of people trace their lineage back to the Assyrian invasion. So when Assyria invaded the northern kingdom, basically wipes out northern Israel, um, people that survived were ultimately kind of assimilated into that culture and become what the Jews at the time considered kind of like a half-breed people. So they weren't really Jewish. They weren't really Assyrian. They weren't really Roman. They weren't really anything. They were just kind of this outcast people, not really claimed by any of the major powers surrounding them, living in the midst of them. So they lived just north of Jerusalem, uh, just south of this region of Galilee, kind of right in the middle of Israel, as kind of an outcast people. And they have been known and told their whole life that they are not of they are not true Israel. They are not the people of God. They are not part of the blessing of God. That they have been tainted in such a way that they cannot be included in the worship of God according to Israel. So that's who these people are. You, you've met Samaritans before in the Bible. Uh, so the woman at the well, when Jesus is sitting at the well in John 4, that woman is a Samaritan woman. And so the disciples are shocked that Jesus would not only just be speaking with her, but speaking with her the way he was speaking to her, with the same hope, with the same message that he was bringing to the Jews at the time. We also see Jesus, and the reason why that was so crazy is because at the time, Jews did not speak to Samaritans. They did not have a high view of Samaritans. Uh, Jesus uses a Samaritan as the main character of one of his most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is why it's important that we understand Samaritans were not considered good people. I think because of that parable, we think Samaritans, we all want to be the Good Samaritan. At that time, Samaritans were never the heroes of the story. And so when Jesus did that, he was doing that to push on them. He used them specifically to push on their preconceived notions. So that's who this. Samaritans were. That's who these people were that Philip begins to proclaim this to. And I think, I think when we understand that, we realize why they responded the way they did. For so long, they were told that they were not of Israel, that they were not a part of this kingdom, that they were not brought into the blessing of God. Then all of a sudden, this man shows up proclaiming the good news of Jesus, proclaiming this thing that they thought might only be for the Jews and saying, no, 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 God came for you too. And they, the same healing that was brought to the Jews through the apostles is being brought to you now. The demons that have oppressed you are being cast out of you now. The good news that Christ came for you as well is now being made manifest in your presence. And it says they responded with joy. There's a movie that came out maybe 10 years or so ago called Idiocracy. Has anybody seen this movie? A few people. It's a really dumb movie. So, like, don't, you don't need to waste your time watching this movie. Um, the basic premise, it's Luke Wilson is the main character. Uh, he's this average guy, average intelligence. <clears throat> he ends up getting cryogenically frozen for, like, 100 years or so. And during that time, all of the intelligent people in the world die off, and all of the not-so-intelligent people of the world perpetuate. So he wakes up to what most people would consider being a genius. 
So he's this average guy, but he wakes up being a genius. And uh, like I said, it's not a, not a great movie. Um, but they're driving down the road, and he's looking around, and he's noticing all these crops are failing. Like, the crops are dead. And he's trying to figure out why. And they, they say, well, you know, we're doing all this stuff to it. And he, he digs in a little bit further, and he realizes that they've been watering the crops with Gatorade. And that's why, you know, they're dying. But they can't figure out why these crops are dying. And so he makes this suggestion. He makes this suggestion. He's like, why don't we put water on the crops? Why don't we just water them and see what happens? They're a little skeptical, but he's proven to be a genius, so they listen to him. Ultimately, the crops grow. Civilization is saved. The movie ends, and you realize you can't get that hour and a half of your life back. (laughs) But I think that there's something in that that in the simplicity of his response that I think we can see here that is, that is true. See, see, the truth is, like, we all live in this broken world, and I think sometimes we think the answer is by giving it Gatorade or doing something else. What we don't realize is that the most basic need is the most obvious need, and that's that we need Jesus. It needs the hope of Christ. I think it's easy to gloss over this fact that the world is truly desperate to hear this message. We might not always feel it, we might not always think it, but this is what we most deeply need. We need this hope. We need it to address the brokenness that we feel. You know, some of us in here might be coming with a lot of baggage, a lot of baggage. Whether, you know, our, our marriages might be a mess, our families might be a mess, our job might be a mess. We just might feel like a mess. We're overwhelmed by, by the, the craziness that we might see in this world. We're, we're discouraged, we're frustrated, we're depressed, all of these things. And it might be easy for us to try to put all of these things over it to fix it. But if you miss the central message of the Bible and the answer to this, then we miss the, something obvious. That what we need, what you might just need this morning, is Water is the water of life, of the hope that God brings in the good news of what he has done. That the message to the Samaritans is the same message to you, that God came for you, that he loves you and is wanting to bring you into his family. And that is good news. So we see this here, that that the good news of Jesus brings healing and joy, that the good news is actually good news. That it is the answer to our desperation. That it is the most core need that we all have. And that without that, all of these other solutions we have don't matter. This is one of the central messages of the whole Bible. That it is God who saves, not us. So I want us to see that. I want to make sure we, we realize this. It's, it's one of those verses, it's, it's only a few words, so there was much joy in that city. But I think there's something telling about that, that there's a desperateness that is, that is found in the gospel, that, that, that those who are in need find hope, they find healing, they find joy. And many of us have been there before and have found those things, and some of us are in here now needing those things. And the answer is that there is deep hope enjoy in the good news of Jesus. So the story goes on, and we meet a man named Simon. Not Simon Peter, 
who is another person in the Bible, Simon the Magician. And I've I got to be honest, it's hard for me to imagine Simon the Magician outside of the context of Joe Bluth from Arrested Development, which makes reading this story a very interesting read. So bear with me as we read this. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So they considered him a God, is what that's saying. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So not only do we see that the good news of Jesus brings healing and joy, but we see that it brings the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So with the proclamation of the good news of what Jesus has done and who he is, we see the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing about this is that it immediately overwhelms the counterfeit power of their culture. Is that both all the people who were enticed by Simon and Simon himself immediately see this. Now, like, I think it's easy for us to think like this is a magician kind of like at a kid's party or something like that. But this is a person who was able to keep captive this entire city by the things that he would do. That they were, they were enthralled by it. He, wore, he bore incredible influence to the point where they considered him a god. And then all of a sudden, Philip comes in and actually, through God through Philip, heals people. Like, actually heals them. He casts out demons. He brings, he, he proclaims a message about a man who was crucified and then brought back to life. And they immediately see and recognize two things. One, what Philip is talking about and what Philip brings is real power. And two, that the power that Simon the magician was doing was counterfeit. It was false. I think many of us who've experienced the true power of God have experienced this reality. Because I know we, we don't necessarily live in a world of magicians, but we definitely live in a world filled with counterfeit systems of power. We live in a world where we are constantly either, either driving these systems of power or subsumed into these systems of power. We have the counterfeit power of wealth, success, and beauty that we can that we easily get wrapped up into. The counterfeit power of education, that somehow education is our way out. It's going to be the healing of all the ills of this world. The counterfeit power of personality and celebrity and the counterfeit power of politics. And all of these things work the same way that Simon the Magician did. He was just kind of doing all of these glitz and glamour things and everybody else was enthralled in it and it had no real power in its essence. Uh, there's a woman named Michelle Alexander who is a highly respected lawyer 
um, has worked for years both practicing law and teaching law at Ohio State University. She wrote a book called The New Jim Crow, and works specifically in rights for uh, criminal justice reform and things like that. Spent her, dedicated her whole life to it, but was recently chosen to walk away from law and all that stuff and pursue a seminary degree. Um, and she writes this about it. it. says, solving the crises we face isn't simply a matter of having the right facts, graphs, policy analyses, or funding. And I no longer believe we can win justice simply by filing lawsuits, flexing our political muscles, or boosting voter turnout. Yes, we absolutely must do that work, but none of it, not even working for some form of political revolution, will ever be enough on its own. Without a moral or spiritual awakening, we will remain forever trapped in political games fueled by fear, greed, and the hunger for power. She's a woman who spent her entire life working within this counterfeit power of politics and policy and law. And it's not that any of these things don't have their place. So don't mishear me in that. But ultimately, they can't do what only God can do. And that has changed people's hearts. That has ultimately healed people from their wounds and their addictions and their brokenness. And she recognizes that she does that. And this is something that I, I think that for those of us who have seen the power of God... It's easy for us to see the counterfeit power of man. You know, one, one uh, side note about the presence of God in this and, and that we need to address uh, is the way that the Spirit was given. So I want to take just a moment real quickly to talk about that. Because this is one of those passages that is used oftentimes for uh, the theological idea of the second giving of the Spirit or the second reception of the Spirit. Now, we are not going to get into that. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Um, for those of you that do, this is one of those passages that talks about this. Now, we don't believe in that, and I don't believe this passage talks about this. And I think that if we focus on that, we're going to miss the bigger point of what's going on here. See, there are, there are things that are prescriptive in the Bible. Do you guys know what I mean by that? That something happens in the Bible, and what's implied in that is that that should happen the way for us, too that we should act like that, that they are prescribing something for how we should live now. That happens in the Bible. But also, there are things that are descriptive in the Bible that are not necessarily saying this is the way that it always is or that it will always happen, but this is the way that it did happen then for a particular reason. Now, a lot of uh, controversy can surround whether or not something is prescriptive or descriptive. And we'll see that a lot in the book of Acts, and we'll, you'll hear us talk about this again later in the book of Acts. I believe, and not just me, but we have come to this where we look at this as a descriptive moment, that this is not something that is prescriptive for how the Holy Spirit is always received, because the question we should ask is why didn't they just receive the Holy Spirit either through Philip or when they were baptized? Why did Peter and John have to travel from Jerusalem all the way to Samaria to give them the Spirit? I think that what happens is God, in his wisdom and forbearance in this moment, realizes that if it didn't happen this way, there would always be this question in people's minds. That if the spirit came through Philip or somebody else, the spirit that the Samaritan church received is a lesser spirit than the one that the Jerusalem church received. I think what we're seeing in this moment is God once again affirming that he loves and cares for the Samaritans in this. It's not condescending it's not, it's not insulting to Philip. 
It was done for a specific reason of communicating something about God's spirit. It was important that they understand that this is the same spirit that came to the Jerusalem church that's coming to the Samaritan church that ultimately will come to the Gentile church that we'll see here in a few chapters. That there's nothing, that their prejudices don't matter or they don't mean anything anymore under Christ. That it's not about whether they were born Jewish or converted to Judaism or whether they were Gentile or Samaritan. That they are all one and the same under the same spirit. And that's what we see communicated by the fact that Peter shows up and gives the spirit. We see this in a major way, like the power and presence of the spirit was made manifest in the, Samarit- in the Samaritan church. They believe, they are baptized. Even Simon the magician believes and is baptized. And immediately it shows that the power that they had witnessed before was counterfeit. Now, there are some of us in here who I think are still enticed and enamored by the counterfeit powers of this world. And my hope, and we'll talk about this again in just a little bit, my hope is that we're confronted by this reality. We're confronted by the true power of the Holy Spirit here in this passage and then in our experiences here as a church. Now the story continues, and this is where we begin to see a conflict. And I will say this, this is one of the harder passages I've ever preached on, not because it's complicated, but because it's so clear on what it's communicating. Um, So starting in verse 18, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. What we see here, and it's one of the most, I I think it's incredibly clear what's being said here. That's that the power of God cannot be bought. The power of God cannot be bought. So we see this incredible moment where the Samaritan church comes to the realization that Jesus loves them and has come for them as well. That they can be included into the community of God. They see the power, they see the presence. But immediately, and and what I think is so fascinating about the story is what immediately creeps in is something that I think is true of just the human heart. That is our impulse in all circumstances to try to do this. The reason why this is such a hard passage to preach is because I am Simon very often. And we, have to, and we see this reality that we want ultimately to use the power of God for our own purposes. And everything that we do is currency in order to purchase that reality. When I was in junior high and high school, like many nerds like me, I was introduced to the Lord of the Rings and, and loved the Lord of the Rings. Just a little insight into me. So my senior year of high school, 
uh, during spring break while all the other people were doing things that people do in spring break. I was in my room from the moment I woke up, the moment I would fall asleep, devouring the second two books of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like I literally, I didn't do anything else spring break of my senior year. I literally just read those. I'd read The Fellowship of the Rings earlier, read those later. I cried at the end because my friends were leaving and I couldn't go with them. It was a sad childhood. Um, it was a sad reality of my life. Um, <clears throat> and I say this, and I bring Lord of the Rings up because one of the, one of the themes of the Lord of the Rings is the allure of power. Um, if you've been, if you don't know it, have any idea what the Lord of the Rings is about. So you, you've either been living under a rock for the last 70 years, or you have a life um, <laughs> and have no idea what the Lord of the Rings is about. Um, it's basically the, the, the premise and the setup for the story is that there were a bunch of rings created back somewhere, sometime in history. And this is how people knew they had power. So the different kings of the various kingdoms would all have rings, the elves, the dwarves, all of them. Whoever was in charge had a ring. What they didn't realize was this evil guy named Sauron who created one ring that would rule over them all. And as long as he had that ring, that all the other rings would subsume to his power, hence the name, the Lord of the Ring. Um, and he would do this. Ultimately, the ring gets separated from him. Through battle, he dies, and the ring falls off. And all these people try to wield the power of this ring for their own purposes. And ultimately, it doesn't work, as we find out. The ring gets lost, gets rediscovered. There's a bunch of people trying to use the ring for their own purposes and a bunch of people trying to destroy the ring, and that's what 800 pages of The Lord of the Rings is about. Um, so I won't give anything away. Uh, but there's this interesting dichotomy in there with power. And I, and I get that there is a glaring problem with this analogy, as in the ring is evil, and I'm comparing it to the power of God, which is not evil. Um, but bear with me in principle. See... What happens is people do what people do. They see something powerful, and they want to use it for their own agenda. And this is ultimately the temptation of the ring for all of these people. They want to use this thing for their agenda. But Gandalf, who is a wizard, um, <laughs> makes this point. And this is right after he is tempted. He's a good wizard, um, which is great. Um, He's a good wizard, and they think, well, certainly a good wizard could use this ring for good, and all the, what, what great things this, this wizard could do with this ring of power because he's a good wizard. And he makes this point. He says, there is only one Lord of the ring, only one who can bend it to his will, and he does not share power. So yes, this is not a perfect analogy because the ring is evil, but I think the principle is the same. This is what... This is what Peter responds to Simon so strongly. First off, Simon's attempt to buy it means that he doesn't really understand the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know what he's purchasing or attempting to purchase. That this is not a power that he could even wield for his purposes. It's a power greater than him, beyond him, that would find his purposes petty in light of the purposes of God. So, so it, it, it is insulting, to put it that way, to God to think that you could purchase his power. Secondly, what Peter knows is that it's impossible. 
but there is no way that he could purchase it and use it for what he's wanting to do. Because, very similarly to the constructs in the Lord of the Rings, God does not share his power. God does not submit to us. The Holy Spirit doesn't work like that. The Holy Spirit does not submit to our will and to our agenda. It submits to the Father. And it does not share, he does not share power with us. So we see Simon doing this thing where he is trying to use power that he sees for his own will. And what's so hard about this passage is that every single one of us does this at some point in time. We'll do this towards each other, even. You know, one of the things that, uh, as we have talked with a lot of people who are not from America, some Christian leaders and uh, other Christians from around the globe, one of the things they find most strange about American culture is that the first question we'll ask one another is, what do you do for a living? Now, I know that some of that is just social norms. We're just asking the question. But embedded in that, and I know that this is true even in my own heart, is when I'll ask people that or when we'll ask one another that, we're asking because we want to know what that person can do for us. Wanting to know, is this person important to talk to or not? Is this person, can I use this person and their influence for my own power and influence? And that's evil when that happens. But it's even worse when it happens towards God. And we'll do that all the time. It might not be money, but we've got to remember that currency comes in all forms. And oftentimes it's the more subtle currency that we'll use to buy it that is, also, that is usually the more evil. We'll try to buy God with our money. We really will actually try to use money. We'll think if we just give enough, then maybe God will do what I want him to do in my life. Maybe if I have enough influence, then God will do what I want him to do in my life. We'll use our good works. We'll think of just if we're good enough, if we do enough good things, then God will certainly do what I want him to do. We'll do it through our piety. If I'm just spiritual enough, if I'm just holy enough, if I do enough quiet times, go to enough Bible studies, pray enough, all of these things, then maybe, just maybe, God will do what I want him to do. We'll do it through our knowledge. This is the one where I would struggle with most. If we can just study enough, if we can understand enough, if we can read enough commentaries and past theologians, if we can understand the Bible, all the ins and outs of it and stuff like that, then maybe, just maybe, if we know enough about God, he'll do what I want him to do finally. I'll get his blessing. I'll get him to actually do what I'm wanting. We'll even do this in our verbal worship. I think this is one of the most striking and hard things about this, the most challenging form of currency. And, and I say this with, with more with lament because I wrap myself into this oftentimes. That sometimes we can even show up to church in this moment doing this thing, not because we are actually responding to who God is, but we're trying to get something out of God. We'll sing these songs, we'll pray these prayers, we'll listen to these sermons, and we'll preach these sermons because we want God to do something for us. And ultimately, that is us trying to buy God. And as Peter says, God cannot be bought. Mark Laberton is a guy, uh, he wrote a book called The Dangerous Act of, Act of Worship. He is either the, I, I don't think he's the current president of Fuller, 
um, but he was at one point in time. He was a pastor as well. Uh, Frank would get a kick out of the fact that a Dallas Seminary guy is quoting somebody from Fuller Seminary. Um, but uh, he writes in the book, The Dangerous Act of Worship, basically he's talking about this discrepancy between what we'll say to God and what we actually want or communicate in our actions and lifestyle towards God. And he writes this. He says, our central lie is in the discrepancy between the language of worship and the actions of worship. We confess Jesus is Lord, but only submit to the part of Christ's authority that fits our grand personal designs. Doesn't cause pain. Doesn't disrupt the American dream. Doesn't draw us across ethnic or racial divisions. Doesn't add the pressure of too much guilt. Doesn't mean forgiving as we have been forgiven. Doesn't ask for more than a check to show compassion. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs expressing our desire to know Jesus. But the Jesus we want to know is a sanitized Jesus that looks a lot like us when we think we are at our best. Despite God's word to the contrary, we think we can say we love God and yet hate our neighbor, neglect the widow, forget the orphan, fail to visit the prisoner, ignore the oppressed. It's a sign of disordered love. And when we do this, our worship becomes a lie to God. That's a hard one to read. See, I think the truth is we all want God's power. There is something in us that is enamored by it, that is drawn to it. But what we don't want, what we don't really want, is his presence. And that's the problem with Simon. That's ultimately the, why Simon gets treated in response the way he did. He sees the power of God, this power of the Holy Spirit that brings about healing, that brings about demons being cast out, that brings about all of these things. He sees that power, and he's enthralled by it. He wants it. He wants to use it for however he wants to use it. But if he really understood that power and the presence of God that came with it, he would have never done what he did. See, I think that's true in a lot of us. We want God's power, but we don't, we don't want God's presence. We don't want to know what God will do with our lives if we really submit it to him. We don't want to know what God will do and change in our lives if we really give our lives to him. But as we see in here and as we see it over and over again, you don't get God's power without his presence. And this is why Peter responds the way that we do, or the way that he does, that this is a big problem and this is a pervasive problem. What's interesting is Peter himself struggled with the same thing earlier in his life. Jesus rebukes him multiple times, one time even saying, get behind me, Satan. It's that strongly that this is felt by God, that you don't subvert his power, or don't even attempt to, not that you could even if you wanted to. And this is why I, I think this is so, it's such a challenge, because I think this is such an easy trap for us to fall into. You know, it's interesting, so we'll, uh, we all meet together, uh, the pastors from the other redemption congregations, we'll meet together to discuss the passages that we're preaching. It's one of my favorite parts of being on staff here. Um, is that we get to do that. You hear the wisdom of all these different people coming together. And there's kind of a debate amongst some of the commentaries, and we brought it up, and this is to whether or not Simon was saved or not, whether or not Simon was truly a believer. Uh, and that's something that some people love to do, is they love to try to figure out who's saved and who's not saved. It's kind of the human condition to figure out who's in the club and who's not. But the ultimate conclusion we came to is that it doesn't really matter that it's kind of ambiguous. Simon believed and he was baptized. We're not sure if he fully repents at the end. He kind of repents by asking Simon or Peter to pray for him. 
We don't really know, and we never meet him again. We never see him again, so we don't know what happened to him. But I kind of like the ambiguity of it, because this isn't just a problem for people who have not committed their lives to God. This is not just a problem for the, for the unredeemed, but this is in some ways a bigger problem for those who are. This is something that if there was not constant repentance of this, I would be overcome by this all the time. You know, raising kids, what's really frustrating about raising kids is that you're raising little versions of yourself and you'll find the most irritating things about your children are the things that are most irritating about yourself. So my, uh, my son, uh, my oldest son, is very much so like me. Like, it is like raising myself, and I apologize to my wife all the time for that reality. He's an, he's an incredible kid, but all, every kid has their quirks, and his quirks happen to also be my quirks, just a slightly less mature version of them. And so one thing that has been interesting about that is that doing that has made me really actually become very aware of my own pitfalls, of my own kind of uh, tendencies towards things. So he loves to be right, he loves to be in charge, he loves to be in control, he loves to have a plan. Like, those are all me. And that's the current, and those are the things that I'm trying to do to get God to come alongside with. I want to control him. I want to control the outcomes. Like, I, I want to be in charge, I want to be right. And I'll pay whatever it takes to get God to come alongside in that. And if it wasn't for the constant community around me calling me to repentance in that, I would just be overcome by it. I, I, like, I would, just, I would just fall into that all the time. And so I share that, for one, to let you know that this is not just a you guys thing. This is an us thing. But to also, hopefully, let us hear the words of Peter in this, that this is a big deal, that we need to turn from this. So I think we, we have to ask the question, what we do with all of this? One thing, I, what, what I've loved about this passage is I think that there's something in it for all of us. My hope, and, and I sincerely mean this, both for myself and for all of us in here, is that at the very least, none of us leave here without an honest reckoning of our heart, asking ourselves some very hard questions that this passage and what we've experienced in worship brings up. You know, for some of us in here, I think you guys can identify with kind of the first, first part of the story, where you guys just might be at a place of des- desperateness and desperation. You guys might be at a place where you just really need God. You're tired of Gatorade, and you need water. You need something to fill that deep thirst that you have. You might be here at your wit's end within your marriage or with your kids or at your job, you might be in all of these various situations. You might just be here, just a desperate need of God. And I hope that what you hear this morning is that the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came for you. And that by turning to him and just accepting his love, accepting his payment for you and what he did on the cross and the new life that he brings in his resurrection, that you can now be a part of God's community so many reasons why we feel separated from it, but there's only reason, there, there's no good reason for why we should feel separated from it. God has come and done the work to bring us in, this community. So you might be there right now. 
You might just have come feeling that desperation. My hope is that if that's the case, that you would respond by turning to Jesus, by taking the water that's in front of you and drinking of it. Some of you guys may be at a place where you just honestly feel overwhelmed and subsumed into the counterfeit powers of this world. Whether you're the magician, whether you're those enticed by the magician, you've just been enthralled by this. And you were maybe hearing for the first time this morning, or maybe you've been hearing it for a long time and just ignoring it. That that power is not true power. That is not the power that can save. That is not the power that can heal. That is not the power that gives ultimate hope. That only rests in Jesus. And maybe that's you this morning. And maybe that what you need to do as you walk away is, is realize that you have been duped by believing that something in this world can save you apart from Christ. And turn to him. Accept and experience the true power that comes through God. The healing, the, the, the hope, the joy that can only come through Christ. My hope is that as you, as you leave here, you would do that. You would turn to him in repentance. And for some of us, we might be here trying to purchase the power of God for our own purposes. I think this is probably the hardest thing any of us have to do with the idea of grace. Historically, this is where the church fails all the time. So we always try to figure out some way to earn it. Some way to own it. Some way to have some power over it, some hold over it, so that ultimately we can use it for ourselves. This is not a unique problem to us. This is not a unique problem to Simon. This is a human heart condition. And some of us may be here now doing that. That you've been trying to purchase God through your piety, through your worship, through your money, through your influence. You've been trying to purchase God through your good works. Now, I want us to hear the strong rebuke. So I'm going to read what Peter said, one of the lines that Peter said. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. That is a strong rebuke. And it's strong because it's a strong problem. It's a deep problem. But the good news is that Jesus can even forgive that. That Jesus can change the intents of our heart. That Jesus can redeem that and forgive that and bring us into his mercy in that. So if you are here thinking that you, we are here to buy God's power, I want to remind you first and foremost that God's power is given but never bought. So God is giving you the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way to receive it is by receiving his presence into your life fully and completely, submitting to that and realizing that it is no longer you who is in charge, but God. And if that's you, then I, I want you to rec reckon with that. I, I want you to ask some hard questions about your soul about who you are and, and about what you believe. And know that there is hope in repentance. That's what I love about all of these things. The answer is the same. We repent and turn to Jesus. That, that's the answer for all of these problems, regardless of where we are, is to repent and turn to Jesus. So my ultimate hope is that that's exactly what we would do in response to this. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you God, that we can have hope in you, or that it's not because of who we are or what we have done that has included us, 
into your community. God, I pray for those of us in here who have been stirred by this, stirred by your spirit, Lord, towards repentance. I pray that they would not ignore it, they would not walk away from it, Lord, they would not try to sweep it aside or anything like that, but Lord, that they would respond with faith in you. God, that whether or not it's out of desperation, whether or not it's because we've been deceived, whether it's not because we're trying to wield power, whatever reason that is keeping us from fully experiencing you and your power and your presence and your healing and your joy, God, I pray that we would turn from it now. Lord, and, and, and accept you and, and respond, Lord, with faith and submission to you. Lord, we pray those things in your name. Amen.